hi y'all did i just say y'all i kind of was like hi all but it did go slide into y'all but hi <laughs> i'm from southern ohio i can't apologize for that hello welcome to conversations with a wounded healer i'm your host sarah buino and this is a podcast where i have conversations with other people in healing professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while taking care of others and i have to tell you when i do these intros i already think oh okay what do i need to share with people what am i supposed to advertise today what do i have to tell you about and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll remind people to post reviews. And so I went and looked to see if there were any new reviews lately. And I started crying, essentially, when I read this review from a listener who I've gotten the chance to meet. And I'm, I'm so pleased to have made a friend in her, Naomi. She wrote this amazing review that I'm going to share with you. She said, how is it possible? I don't know how she does it, but Sarah doesn't just talk about healing with healers, but she manifests healing through this podcast. I've been listening for over a year, and this podcast has been essential to my healing as my own therapy has. Her podcast is authentic, powerful, and nurturing, basically Sarah in podcast form. It is a must-have on anyone's podcast list. It ain't just for therapists, folks. Tune in, and I believe you will agree. Ugh, Naomi. God, my heart. That is so... It's so sweet. It's so moving. And I tell you, you know, there are days in this profession and just in the world in general, I think, where we can question our worth. We can question, you know, is it making a difference? Is what I say, does it matter? And it's so cool to get feedback when it does. So, Naomi, I just I can't tell you how much that means to me. And for other folks that enjoy the podcast, you know, if you want to write a review, too, it might just touch me enough to make me cry and read it on the air. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, crying fast over. I need to introduce you to today's guest because we had an amazing conversation and I'm super excited for you to, to hear from her. So Tristan Terramino is an award-winning sex educator, media maker, and speaker. She's the author of eight books and editor or co-editor of 25 anthologies. She keynotes, lectures, and teaches workshops around the world on sexual pleasure and health and relationships and social justice. She's the host of a podcast called Sex Out Loud, of which I got the pleasure of being a guest, and she's the creator of Sex Educator Bootcamp, a professional training program. She also runs a coaching and consulting business for sexuality professionals. So you're really going to love Tristan just as much as I love her. So please enjoy my conversation with Tristan Terramino. Hello, Tristan Terramino. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan. So it's really nice to be on like the shows that you are a fan and listener of. Oh, I felt the same way when I got to be on your show. Yay! <laughs> I got to tell you, I just love that smile that you put on your face right now. It makes me very happy to see that. It's genuine. Um, if I, I was, know. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I know. Just, yeah. I really it's liked genuine. it. Okay. Just let you know. <laughs> Okay. So before we digress, we can tell folks how we met. Do you want to tell or you want me to tell? Oh, I'll tell. <laughs> Please do. Well, so I went to Podcast Movement, which is a big podcast industry conference. And I went sort of blindly. Like I, I had submitted a panel with the podcast collective that I'm a part of. And we were rejected, but I had already decided I would go. And I went with a friend of mine who is the host of another podcast. And so when I got there, first of all, I didn't know the scale of it. It's massive. Right, like, me neither. It's like 3,000 people yeah. or more, and it's like insane. And also, 
it felt very corporate. Yeah. You know, I still think of like <laughs> yeah. the podcast as like the zine of the, you know, mm-hmm. 2010s or something. And so I was like, okay, I'm here. I have one person that I know. I need to find the cool people. I need to find the weirdos. <laughs> right. I need to find the queers. I need mm-hmm. to find the offbeat people, my people. And so just going on instinct and doing a, a basic read of people's personal expression, <laughs> I, I walked up to you at a party that was at a bar uh-huh. and just said like, hi. And we started talking. And as it turns out, we had a lot in common. And I just, I loved you like from right off the bat. I was like, oh my God, like I found, I've totally found the person. I did it. I did it. I found my person. I did it. I did it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was good. You know, what if I like sidled up to you and you were like, oh, hi, I do a podcast about brides or, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, just like, right. I own a bridal shop in some state and I'm just really into bridal culture. (laughs) That would have been really weird. That would be amazing. I'd be like, oh, no, that's interesting. I totally wouldn't have been rude, but I would like, maybe we're not matched on that. And just because our jobs and stuff do overlap, like I'm not a therapist, but I'm a sex educator and I talk to people all day, every day about their sex lives and their relationships and their hopes and their desires and their struggles and challenges. And so and then a lot of people I know who are in my life are therapists Mm -hmm. and I myself have been in therapy since, let's just do 1993. And various types of therapy and, you know, so as like a consumer. So I was like, well, I'll never run out of things to talk to you about. Yay! Yeah. And I think instantly we were both like, dig in the hair, dig in the outfit, dig in the tude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you already spilled the beans that you're a sex educator. By the way, guys, Tristan is kind of super famous, so she's kind of downplaying her importance. It's funny that I didn't know who you were. And then I think it was when I looked at your Instagram, I'm like, that's a fuck ton of followers. And then I was like, oh, I have one of your books. That's amazing. (laughs) That's great. So tell folks a little bit more about who you are and how you got here. Yeah, I mean, I almost don't want to tell you the whole story because I am writing my memoir. (laughs) So save it for the pages. Got it. Got it. Tell me whatever Um, you want. Right. But I mean, the short story is that I believed I wanted to be a lawyer working in public service. Senior year of undergraduate, I got rejected from every law school I applied to. Hmm. I went to see my advisor, who is this amazing professor who to this day I'm in touch with. Hmm. Professor Claire Potter. And what up, Claire? And she was like, Tristan, you know, like the work we've been doing on your undergraduate thesis, like makes me think like, I don't know that you want to be a lawyer. And I don't think (laughs) you want to go to law school, which, Mm. you know, and I was like, well, what could I possibly do? Because I'm a planner and type A. Uh And she said, I think that you want to write about sex. I think you're really good at it. I think you should try it. And at the time, it's 1993, folks. I didn't think that was a job. I mean, this is pre the only person even talking about sex in a in a public way is Dr. Ruth. And there's no one else. This is pre-Dan Savage, pre all of that. And she really changed the course of my life, really, which is just amazing. And that's what really good teachers and mentors can do. 
as you know. So I started writing about sex. Really, I was I just wanted to write about my own sex life and explore like what was happening for me and, Mm. you know, power dynamics and desire and pleasure and all this stuff. But there was a growing, tiny, tiny, tiny growing movement of people writing erotica. Right. And so I was like, okay, so I just have to kind of change the names and the distinguishing characteristics of these people. But these are all true stories. So if anyone has read my writing from back in the day, all that shit. Spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) But seriously, their names have changed. And so and then you'll see some of those things come up in my memoir and you'll be like, wait, I did. Haven't I read this story before? I thought this was yeah, not fiction. All true. And that led me to a publisher where I pitched a series, Best Lesbian Erotica, which, again, the erotica genre was just just starting to happen. And then that publisher, which was queer and independent and feminist, put out a call to all the people that they worked with for book proposals for a new series they were doing Mm. about sex. And they wanted something very specific. They said, these volumes are not going to be like a big encyclopedia. We want you to pick one topic in sexuality that you're really passionate about and pitch us that book. So I pitched them the book, The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. And even their little feminist heart, like, sort of skipped a beat. Oh, <laughs> and they I were bet. Like, I bet. Um, hmm, how do we say this? Okay. I guess <laughs> we were thinking about something a little more mainstream, mm-hmm. beginner, universal. I mean, they were just like, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and they were like, it's, it's, I mean, this is a very thorough proposal, but maybe this won't be like the first book in the series. And so it ended up actually being the first book in the series, a series which continues to this day. Fuck yeah. And so I came up with the title, The Ultimate Guide. And so and now they have the whole series. So I wrote that book. I started teaching workshops based on that book, wherever Mm. they would have me, which at that time was sex shops, which there weren't a lot of them, community organizations. And I got up in front of a room full of strangers talked about a really taboo topic, answered people's questions to the best of my ability of what I knew. And it was like, oh, I think this is what I meant to do. <laughs> you know, like, wow, this doesn't freak me out. It doesn't make me nervous. It it comes easily to me. I feel like, oh, I've made a difference. This person's now going to walk out the door and actually like have information or validation. And I've like actually made this tiny difference in someone's life. So maybe this is the job. And then I literally created my own job. There was no role models. There were no examples of what to do. I was just like, let me figure this out and let me figure out how to support myself. So, of course, I had a day job for many years. I worked on Madison Avenue in advertising. (laughs) And then the company I worked for, which was a dot-com, I worked there for like two years. I saw the growth go from eight people to 200 people. They began laying off people because they were going to shutter their doors. And they gave me a good severance package. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this money and figure this out and never go back to working for someone else. Nice. And here we are. And here we are. And I'm curious, thinking about I mean, you're graduating from undergrad and you're thinking about going into law. You're, what, 22 years old? And what was it in your younger years that kind of led you down that path of like, well, of course, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to do this very mainstream thing. What was childhood like for Tristan? 
Yeah. I mean, it's so funny to do this interview now because I'll say that most times I'm on a podcast, people are like, what are your best tips for polyamory or female orgasms or fantasy role play? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But this is all about you. And it's interesting because I have been I am right now in the process of digging into my own past in a very deep and profound way. And it's the most terrifying time, but also just the most fascinating to look at it from far away and say, oh, I I didn't remember that. Wow. I did that. Oh, interesting. Oh, I... Those people were in my life. Oh, now it's beginning to make sense. So I grew up with a single mom, the only child of a single mom. My parents got divorced before I turned two when my dad came out as a gay man and left my mom. And I didn't have contact with my dad for about six years. And then one day I was like, hey, what's up with my dad? And my mom was like, oh, I know where he is. You can see him. So I developed a relationship with my dad, which was very, very intense and close. In some ways, I felt like I shared all of my DNA with my father. My mom was like a bit of a mystery to me. And I think the biggest point of conflict growing up was that she was raised by these very, very, very waspy people who could win a contest in stoicism. And so she did not show a lot of emotion. And as it turns out, I came out the womb quite emotional Mm-hmm. Empathic, I feel you there. <laughs> intense, some might say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was really strange. She didn't know how to handle my emotions. And because I was mm-hmm. young, I didn't then know. I, I didn't have any right. guidance, right? I literally didn't have any guidance. And I was like, if she thinks this is weird, this must be weird. If she says, just calm down, I must be able to just calm down. Why can't I just calm down? You know, when I'm having a freak out or something. So I had all this stuff in common with my dad and there was not a lot of conflict there because there was nothing about chores or money or rules, really. But we really had a close relationship. And I came out in 1991. Yay for 1991. I came out, so I've sped ahead, but I came out in 1991 and I came out at the height of Queer Nation and ACT UP. And so it was like, I was a little baby dyke. I had this girlfriend who was not a baby dyke. She was two years older than me. Oh my God, huge, huge age difference. And in the book, her name is Jen. So Jen graduated from school. I was still, I was a sophomore. I went to spend the summer with her. We joined ACT UP and Queer Nation and boom, like hit the ground running. And for me, all of the things that I had like been talking about in the classroom racism, classism, homophobia, ableism, all kinds of discrimination, oppression, inequity. People were doing the work on the street. People were having these conversations over dinner and having these conversations daily because this was their work and their passion. So I came back to school thinking, I want to be a lawyer. I can remember hearing it in my voice, like hearing me tell myself, I want to be a lawyer for the people who don't have access to the system, who've been fucked by the system. And I want to be an activist lawyer, essentially, because I'm an activist now and I heavily identify with that. And I want to be an activist lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Are you an eight, an Enneagram eight? Oh, I haven't done the Enneagram. Can we do it now? My guess would be an eight. (laughs) I mean, 
Sure, if you want to Google it no, and okay, take the yeah, test yeah, real quick. Totally fine. Um, I'll get back to you. No, but the eight is the activist. And mm. there's, so eight, nine, and one. So each, they're not quadrants because it's not in fours, but essentially eight, nine, and one, the underlying fuel is anger. And mm. eights really take that anger and use it to change the world for good. Okay, but let me tell you a little more about my origin story. So my parents Please. decided to name me Tristan whether I was a boy or a girl. They told the doctor they didn't want to know my sex or what the doctors might say my sex was when I got out. And so they wanted to pick a gender neutral name, which at the time they called unisex. And I actually have these like letters and artifacts where they actually refer to this, that they're going to pick a multi-gendered name for me. Tristan is from an old, old tale, Tristan and Isolde. Tristan's a knight who's been commissioned by the king to go get Isolde to bring her back and marry the king. Tristan and Isolde fall in love. It's quite tragic because they can't be together and they end up both dying. Thanks, mom and dad. And so <laughs> like the right origin story for my name. The Latin root of my my name is triste or sadness, sorrow. And I would say I do have a lot of anger, but my primary makeup is more sadness. I tend toward the depressive side of things. And so I feel like that was baked in from the beginning somehow. I don't know. Um, also, like my, you know, when people do my, when astrologers do my chart, they're just like, whoa. So I have a fair amount of anger, but I often turn that inward. I'm more on the sad side. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just going to say that because what I've been learning in NARM, if you've, I think we yeah, talked we about talked this about last NARM. time yeah. on your podcast. So yeah. So everyone who's listened to this show fucking knows already. So I'm not going to tell you again. No, but, but maybe um, <laughs> some of my people will listen to the show. So you should say Oh, again. you're right. You're right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. So NARM, Neuroaffective Relational Model, is a, it's a therapy modality that is getting at developmental trauma. And developmental trauma is essentially the trauma that happens in relationship with ourselves and our caregivers when we're very, very young. And often, whenever there's a failure in the environment, the child often blames themselves instead of recognizing they're in a bad situation. And one of the one of the ways that we heal in NARM is by recognizing grief or anger that's been suppressed or denied. And often we have default emotion, either grief or anger. And I really identify too with, I actually, I remember very, very distinctly for the first time recognizing right after the election, after Trump won and everybody was mad, I was depressed. I was sad and I could not understand why everybody was angry. And I thought like at the time I was like, well, clearly I'm so spiritually evolved that I'm not feeling the anger and that's just not helpful. And what I've realized now is I was just, I've always been bypassing it because anger was unsafe. Mm. And so that in utilizing NARM therapy for myself now, I'm experiencing anger more readily. And it's been so helpful. Yeah, anger <laughs> so wasn't... So I totally get it. Anger was accessible to me on the other side, which is that my dad was completely emotional, very affectionate, very articulate about how he felt all the time. You never, you never were wondering how he felt. My grandmother on his side was bipolar. My father was diagnosed with depression late in his life, but had episodes of mania, which I witnessed. And so I actually, so I witnessed a lot of anger from my dad. And anger to me 
you know, it's like this twisted way that your brain works when you're young. Anger to me meant, oh my God, like we're engaged in this thing. Like you care, <laughs> right? It's, you know, when people say like in relationships, like don't yell at me. If you raise your voice to me, that is a button pusher. It's a trigger. I just need to tell you right now, do not yell at me. And to me, if someone yells at me, they're in it. They fucking care. They're in it and they are like in it. Otherwise, they would just be like quiet and walk away. Right. That's making a lot of sense, too, in the extreme Mm. that you had. Mm -hmm. So you had this extreme of your dad really being on the emotional side and then mom being on the stoic side. And as a, you know, as an adult, I think you can recognize now like, oh, it made sense that I was closer to my dad because, you know, he was exhibiting the same things that I was feeling. But as a child, we get stuck in that. But both my parents have to be right at the same time Mm -hmm. when they are experiencing the world in such divergent ways. I can only assume that I've done something wrong or I'm not good enough or what I'm seeing is not true. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's my core issue. And I I think it's the core issue of a Mm -hmm. lot of people. Like when you follow the story and you follow the narrative Mm -hmm. and you follow all the voices that we're telling ourselves, it gets back to like, am I lovable? Am I worthy of love? And I think I may also have formed an idea that they got divorced because of me. Like no one told me why they were divorced. And my father actually did not come out to me until I was 15. And he didn't come out to me. Someone else outed him to me thinking I knew because everyone knew but me. My mother didn't tell oh, me. And she had tons God, of gay the friends. gaslighting. Yeah. And so it was... <laughs> So there was just also a lot of like secrets and dysfunction around not saying things on both sides of my family. And so now you are a person who says things. You put it out very clearly and very plainly. Right. Isn't it just beautiful how this is a perfect encapsulation of the wounded healer, right? You're like, these are my wounds and I'm going to use them to help other people not have the same wound. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Because the not talking was some of the most painful stuff. Yes. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. Absolute same for me. Yeah. Well, while we just opened that can of worms, how how do you feel about the term healer as applied to what you do? Oh, you knew it was coming. I did because I've listened to your freaking <laughs> show. But somehow I think I just blocked it out because <laughs> now I feel like tremendously <laughs> caught off guard. And then I'm like, Tristan, why are you caught off guard? That's yeah. the dumbest thing. I mean, to me, I think that I have had these preconceived notions about what a healer is, right? And it's like a healer is a therapist, a healer is an acupuncturist, a healer is someone who like lays hands on you and or like a Reiki person. But I do know I've been doing this for 20 years and I get letters from people and people come up to me, you know, at events and say, I've been following you since 1997 and you've changed the way I think about sex or you've changed my relationships, that I've made an actual, real, material impact on people's lives. And I think there does need to be a lot of healing around sexuality. In United States culture, we're just so, so fucked up about sexuality. There is so much shame, so much guilt, anxiety, bad, bad feelings associated with sex, which is ironic because sex is often about pleasure. But it's wrapped in this package that scares the shit out of people. So there does need to be a lot of healing. And there are often people who will say to me, you know, like, I don't remember giving them a specific piece of advice or, you know, telling them, try this technique or this toy. But they say something like, you just witnessed me. 
and you didn't like run screaming from the room. Or you gave me permission because when I said, I think I'm really into feet, you were like, great, let me tell you what I know about feet and foot fetish. And so there is a lot of healing work to be done around sexuality for people and relationships, which I'm also, you know, heavily involved in talking about relationships with people. So I guess I will reluctantly say (laughs) I am a healer. Yay. (laughs) I don't know why. I like when people take it. (laughs) So how about wounded healer? How do you feel about that one? I mean, yeah. I mean, gosh, the wounds are so deep. And to be clear, like, I think the I think there was also some preconceived notions about that for me, which is that my mother had a roof over my head. I was fed and clothed. Mm -hmm. We struggled with money, as in I couldn't get the latest fancy clothes. Mm -hmm. And at some Mm -hmm. point in our lives, like there was some food scarcity. And but I went to a really prestigious college, almost on full scholarship. My mom had to pay barely anything. And my mom had an advanced degree and so did my dad. So I lived surrounded by middle-class people or upper-class people. And so for many years, I felt like, well, I didn't have a traumatic childhood or a negative childhood even because there are people who are being abused. There are people who were experiencing violence, people who were surviving, trying to survive at such a young age. And I had these sort of basic needs met by my mom. And so I really took a took me a long time to figure out that like trauma looks different for different people and negative childhood experiences is a thing. And so I feel like I had this preconceived notion about like people's rough childhoods. And it's like, well, I can't say that I had a rough childhood, Tristan. That's ridiculous. Like you were a lower middle class white girl (laughs) on Long Island, (laughs) right? You know, so I mean, I think a real breakthrough for me, which is like not in the very distant past. Let me just try to time it all. Probably in 2010, I sought out a therapist who openly identified as a Buddhist therapist. And I had been studying Buddhism. A friend of mine was really into it. She was like, hey, I know you're going through some stuff. Like, here's a book. Do you want to read it? Do you want to check it out? I read the book. The book was Pema Chodron, When Things Fall Apart, and uh, threw it across the room. I was like, this is not fucking comforting. This is not comforting at all. (laughs) Right. Which makes me laugh now because it's like I recommended that book and I think someone actually has my physical (laughs) copy of that book, which has like all these notes in it. So she was a Buddhist therapist. So I thought, okay, this is going to like integrate these things, which I've been working on. And she Mm -hmm. was also trained and really into DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And she like knew Marsha Lanahan, who like invented it. And so when I went through a severe depressive time, an episode, and I was hospitalized for suicidality. I went to a place that practiced DBT. I was introduced to DBT. And all of a sudden, first of all, it made perfect sense because it was CBT plus Buddhism or Zen, you know? So I was like, oh, wait, this is everything I've ever been looking for. And this literally makes sense in my head. But also the root of it, because it was originally, as you know, used to treat people with borderline personality disorder, but now they figured out, oh, this works for other people too. And I've, I've never been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I have some elements of it, black and white thinking for sure. Um, <laughs> but I like don't meet the criteria. I'm not good enough. Jesus Christ. I'm not good enough to be that. 
So that's fine. Or at least everyone who's ever evaluated me has said that. And there's been a lot of people. So, but I don't want to shame people with borderline personality disorder because it actually is an amazing set of coping skills. I mean, it's, it's actually, wow, you made it through that because you developed these skills. So they talk about the sort of typical person that they're like shooting for with DBT. And it's someone who was often kind of ignored when they were a child or they were thought to be sort of too much, too overly emotional. And the caregiver wouldn't really acknowledge that in them, right? Wouldn't acknowledge their emotions or help them manage them. And so when I read that, which is like on page one of the fucking manual, (laughs) Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. like... Oh, wait, this this thing actually has impacted my Mm -hmm. entire life and it's 2010 and I'm just now like the light bulbs are Mm -hmm. going off like crazy. So I'm a huge fan of DBT. I went through it then. I've gone through it again. I returned to it and the skills that it's taught me because I like a lot of structure. So when I'm in serious depressive episodes, the structure really, really helps me. Hmm. And a thing that I'm also hearing in this and what can be so transformative and embodied way is you had the cognitive understanding, but it sounds like it got deeper than that. And once you realize that this is a thing, right? So this thing that happened, if it's in this book, clearly I am not the only one who has suffered from this and I don't need to minimize my own pain and gaslight myself. Yes, gaslight myself, which I'm very good at. Yes. And I feel like I've said this before, like my mother was my original gaslighter. And I don't mean she meant harm. I think people who gaslight, there's often the intention is to harm and to deflect and blah, blah, blah. I think my mom did the very best she could. I met the people who raised her. Not a lot of skills there. Not a lot of parenting there. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think she did it intentionally, but I was made to believe that my reactions were not right. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That feeling and having big feelings was bad. Did you ever hear the song Don't Cry Out Loud? Oh, yes. Yes. It's yeah, that's a very waspy. And my mom, you know, to this day does not show very much emotion. She's just and Mm -hmm. I think actually, I mean, I'm developing a working theory. She's never been in therapy, but just that we're having a sort of renaissance in our relationship right now. Things just really drastically shifted because it was like fraught with tension Mm. for so many years. And I'm thinking that actually my anxiety, depression, big feelings was a trigger for her. And she was never given skills for how to deal with her own anxieties. So she was just like, shut that door. Shut it now. Yep. I have no idea what to do with you. Shut it down. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I relate to this so much because that was, I was definitely told I was too much, had too, too many emotions, too big. And I could never understand the shut it down. Like it literally, I probably would have killed myself if I tried to suppress the bigness of my feelings because I literally, and I still to this day, I cannot, I feel very bigly. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's taken Mm -hmm. me so long to sort of embrace that part of me and to also think of it as a gift and, you know, that I have good intuition and I feel things very strongly. All emotions on the spectrum, I feel very strongly. And I have to not like beat myself up about that. 
I have to think of it as a gift and also something to live with. Like it, it can't be fixed. Right. There's no like. Well, and it's not something that needs to be fixed. But I think I thought that for a very long time. Well, yeah, that's literally what you were told. Right. This is wrong. Right. You should fix it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get my, the joke with my husband is that he feels things that like like four is the highest his emotions go and mine go to like 20. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's like me and my mom for sure. And of course, my dad mm. went to 20. So I really heavily identified with him. Yeah. I'm so curious. How is it? writing because the only way I can do this podcast right now is because my parents are dead. There is zero way I would put my authentic self this unfiltered out in the world if my mom was still alive. I just would not be able to do it. So I'm really, really curious. For, not only do you have this like wildly successful podcast and you're the sex educator and all that, but now you're going to tell all the dirty secrets in the memoir. What what is what is happening in your relationships with your parents right now in this process? Right. So my dad died in 1995 of AIDS mm. and oh, goodness. he was diagnosed quite late and it was before the cocktail. So people may be thinking, I know someone who was diagnosed in 1995 and they they're totally well and living. And I know those people, too. But he was he was diagnosed with full blown AIDS. He skipped the HIV because he hadn't been tested. So my dad has died. And in fact, my book ends a little bit after he dies. I consider my life divided. You know what I mean? Like I consider myself divided into two pieces when my dad was alive and after my dad died. So my book actually ends when I'm just 24 years old. So that I'm going to write a second memoir. That's the 24 to now. And by the way, people, that's the one with a lot of sex. Because <laughs> it's like, I feel like if people haven't been following like what I've been saying about my memoir as I write it, mm -hmm. people are like, oh my God, she's going to dish. And it's going to be like nonstop sex, bouncing off the walls, swinging from the chandeliers, like spilling the tea. <laughs> oh my fucking God. And that's coming. But that's not in this memoir. This is much more about my coming of age, my coming out, um, and my relationship with my dad. So as I said, I feel like I have repaired my relationship with my mom after a bazillion years. And we talk more frequently now than we have since I lived with her in her house. People might note this when they read it. Like, the mom seems to be a kind of minor character in this story. Like, what's up with just this mom? Because the focus is on my dad. And, and that's the through line is like growing up the gay dad, then being queer and all that stuff. So I will say I haven't written a lot about my mom, but I have written enough. And I know there has to come a day when if someone decides to publish this book before, way before that, I have to say, hey, mom, there are some parts in here about you. I want you to read them before the world reads them. And I don't mean to hurt you, not even a little bit. I love you. I love the relationship we had now. This was me and how I understood what was happening. So you can contradict this. You can say, that wasn't why I did that. That wasn't why I said that. That wasn't, you know, you can, you obviously have your own story here. This is my story. So, I mean, the best possible thing is that she'll be able to let it go. <laughs> Thank God. You know what I mean? That she won't hang on to it, right? Like, and just be like, oh my God, Tristan hates me, which I don't. But I also have this weird feeling that, that she will say something to me, like she'll read it and she'll be like, well, if that's how you think it happened. Oh, and like you said, yelling is the expression of love and not not talking about it is the trauma. Oh, my God. 
So I think she might focus on that didn't happen exactly that way. I think she might go to the facts, straight to the facts to bypass the feelings. I don't know why that's that's my feeling right now very strongly. But I also think I want to think of a bunch of scenarios so I can prepare myself for them. Right. Because I absolutely will not publish this book before she reads the sections that are about her. It's a gamble. Yeah. And I I think about that anytime I read something that someone writes that's so intensely vulnerable and personal. And I've thought about this, too, as I share specific things on the podcast. Like, obviously, I'll share any part of my story. I don't really care about the vulnerability. I'm in it to win it. But when it affects the life of somebody else, I have to be really judicious about that. And also, she has great qualities. And she raised me as a single mom without spousal support, without child support. She was a feminist. And there were times when I'm amazed. Like, you know, when I turned 30, which is the age she had me, I just think I couldn't keep another human being alive. And I still think that. And right. now I'm <laughs> same. I'm like heading towards 50. And it's like, I couldn't do what she did. I, I really couldn't. So I don't know that it's like all bad. You know, I I feel like I have to acknowledge and it took me this long to acknowledge that there were things she did and sacrifices she made that I had no awareness of as a child. No awareness that she was spending money on me to have horseback riding lessons, which is like money that we didn't even have. I had no idea until much later. I think that's the way for most children and also for most employees They don't know what their bosses do. There's so much. I want to pivot. Pivot. Just because I was thinking about my audience. And now that I have you captive, not that your story is not fascinating and amazing, but a lot of the folks who listen are either already therapists or therapists in training or people who are really into their own therapy. What is it that you wish therapists knew about sex? (sighs) Well, can I need I need to (laughs) shudder? Okay. Oh, shift in your seat. seat. Yeah. Okay. I need to. I need to say two things. Can I say two things? You can say all the fucking things you want. Okay. I need to say what makes a good therapist for me as a consumer. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that second. But first, I'm going to say what do I wish therapists knew about sex? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that we've all grown up. If you've grown up in the United States, you've grown up in a sex-negative culture. And you've grown up with no information or some information or spotty information or unreliable information. Mm -hmm. So it's like this new generation of parents who are like, I want to be a sex positive parent. And I'm like, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. but you don't actually have the skills or information to do that. You actually have to have a re-education program, right? Because you didn't get it from your parents. And so I want us to acknowledge that we don't know things. And it's just as valid to go get competency in sexuality as it is to get competency in sexual minorities, as it is to get competency in people with addictions or substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when people are thinking about what knowledge base should I have to serve my clients the best, sex needs to be on the list. And it often isn't. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come to me because they're like, oh, I have an amazing therapist. Oh, gosh. No, I would never talk to them about sex. So the second thing I want to say is that you have to acknowledge your own biases about sex and sexuality. I'm not asking you to embrace the very colorful spectrum of all that is sex, desire, pleasure, fantasy. 
I'm asking you to have some knowledge of basic activities and what they mean, but I don't need you to say, okay, now I'm totally into this. I totally get it. But I need you to know it. I need to know, I need you to know what you don't know. I need you to be able to refer out if really someone comes to you with something and they're like, this is my sexual dynamic or this is my deep, dark sexual desire. And you're like, this is out of my wheelhouse. This is out of my wheelhouse. So I I need therapists to recognize their own limitations and their own biases. And then I need them to know that it is up to you to model the behavior. Part of why people don't talk to doctors, doctors included, and therapists, is that when they bring up sex, they are right there gauging your reaction. And if they feel like you looked uncomfortable wanting to change the subject, just like, what? judging, just even like subtle body language, subtle, subtle facial things. They're like, okay, clearly I cannot talk about sex with this person. I cannot be honest with this person about my sex and sexuality. So you've got a model, you've got to set up the dynamic, which is we can talk about absolutely anything here. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to shame you. I can take it. You can tell me anything. I know things. You don't know this, but I, you know, advanced training and I know a lot of things. So you can't really surprise me or shock me or like freak me the fuck out. You have to model the behavior. So then they will give it back to you. Because once you're in the room and you sense the discomfort, you're mm-hmm, like, okay, mm-hmm. not going there. Nope. Nope. Just saw it in your yeah. eye. Just flicked a little. Nope. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's such fucking good advice. Because as a therapist in private practice, I've noticed for my clients most of them, I would say it takes at least a year before they even want to bring sex mm. into the room. Mm-hmm. And then when they do, you're right. It's like it's like this very scared little deer. And if you make one wrong move, that deer is bolted <laughs> Bolt. and you're never going to see it again. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And I think it's also OK to bring it up. Right. This is another thing about the modeling mm-hmm. is that if everyone's afraid to talk about it, but if someone asks you a direct question about it. And so if you're in couples therapy and relationship counseling, and your therapist doesn't ask you about your sex life or your sexual dynamic, they do not have the full picture. Come on. So I think the avoidance of it, like maybe I'll just let the patient lead on this, could be helpful or it could be a tactic to avoid it because you're not comfortable with it. Right. I think that because of our socialization with sex, it's a fine line, right? Because we have a question on our on our intake that says, you know, are there any thoughts, concerns about sex or sexuality that you want to share? I would say 9.9 times out of 10, people say, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> right? It's good. We're yeah, good. Yeah. And then so it's up to us as a therapist to really try to kind of feel into, is this an area where I want to try to open a can or is it more important to let this person lead? Because sex can also mirror other relationship issues. Certainly it can mirror power dynamics. Certainly it could mirror who's putting what into the relationship and who's getting what out of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it can it can be a mirror for a lot of things. Absolutely. Do you teach any sort of sex ed for therapists? If not, let's do it. Yeah, no, I have (laughs) a bunch of different trainings. So I have one on competency around non-monogamy. The other book that I'm very well known for is Opening Up, A Guide to Creating and Sustaining Open Relationships. So I'm considered like a non-monogamy expert, whatever that means. And so I have one on competency in different kinds of non-monogamies. I have a training on competency in BDSM and kink. Another thing people are like super 
curious about. I've done competency in LGBTQIA identity and community. And then I've done a kind of, I have a kind of general one, which is this six hour one that I did actually at the University of Michigan recently, which is sort of like all the edges. Like, let's talk about what's taboo to talk about in therapy. Mm. Right. And then inevitably, a lot of these things I just said come up. And of course, sex comes up. So, yeah, let's talk about everything that you're not talking about in therapy and why you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Are you going to package those online at any point? You know, now is the time to package it all online, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I have the energy. Right. (laughs) I I really want to finish this book. And so it's like, oh, my God, there's so many things going on. Uh, But yeah, I should. I should. Or you can just bring me. I can get on a plane and, and you can bring me to your place. You know, I'm 99% sure that we can make that happen because there's the Midwest Sexual Health Alliance. Yes. That I'm sure they would sponsor you. And then we can like just party. (laughs) Well, I also come to Chicago a lot. So we'll be partying (laughs) no matter what. Right. Right. True. Oh, so I had to have my second. Can I have my second say about what makes good therapists? Yeah. Yeah. So as you might imagine, I've had a lot of therapists. (laughs) We have a lot of different styles and schools and training mm-hmm, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I generally run into two main problems with therapists. First, I am a very high-functioning, severely depressed person. I have major depressive disorder. I'm not like a little blue. I have major depressive disorder. I've been hospitalized three times for my depression. It's big. But I am also very high-functioning. So when people find out I have depression, they're like, what? Well, no, you seem, well, you seem energetic and you seem capable and you've gotten all this work done and you've accomplished all that. Thanks, capitalism. I have. (laughs) But when my, but when my regimen of a combination of medication and therapy is working, it's working for me. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean I'm happy all the time. I still have moods, but it's like keeping me functioning. Mm -hmm. So I come in And people's basic read of me, this is like regular people, friends, lovers, strangers, Mm -hmm, and therapists mm -hmm. is like, she's got it together. She's fine. Okay. And I, Mm -hmm. I will take responsibility that I contribute to that image of Mm -hmm. being like a kick-ass woman who like handles her shit. I contribute to that because I put that on even when I'm not. Okay. But that has caused several therapists to approach me with a kind of tough love approach in which compassion is nowhere in the room. And they're like, you know, Tristan doesn't need me to hold her hand. Tristan doesn't need me to say, oh, that sounds hard. That sounds horrible. That sounds devastating. I can skip all that and we can get to this other stuff. So probably my most negative experience with a therapist was someone who literally thought I was above compassion, too tough for compassion, like didn't lead with compassion. And that did a lot of damage to me because I saw her for like several years. Here's what she used to do. She used to crack me open and I can crack open pretty easily now because, you know, I've been in therapy for so long. So I'm not like not talking. (laughs) She would crack me open and she would never put me back together. So I would get in the car and I couldn't drive for an hour. I couldn't drive home. I was such a fucking wreck that I was not even remotely able to like go to my home and like feed myself, like, no basic things. So it was like the cracking open part was great. Thanks for helping me realize these things and get way deep in there in the onion. But she couldn't put me back together or hold space for me to try to put myself back together or anything. And that was 
awful for me. That was definitely awful. My second problem is pretty unique to me, but I will say that, first of all, it's hard to find a therapist for me because I want someone who's LGBTQIA friendly and competent. I want someone who's competent in non-monogamy, in sex work, if I'm going to talk about porn or sex work, in kink and BDSM. And all those people tend to be my friends and colleagues. Right. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Right. So it's like I can I can refer out if you want all that. But if I have to find someone for me, all these people have like been at my house at a, at a dinner party. So that's not good. And I've walked into many therapists office who have one or more of my books on their shelf. So the other thing I've struggled with in finding a therapist is someone who will not treat me like a peer. Because again, I feel like when they start to treat me like a peer, like I know things, I know more than the average bear. Of course I do. I want to believe just like every other client that I am your most fascinating fucking client you've ever had, that you look forward to our hour together more than anyone else and that you look fondly back and say, (laughs) why don't I have anyone as interesting as Tristan? Okay, I have all that, right? I fucking have all that. And I'm competing. I'm competing to be the weirdest, the most complex. To get an A plus. Yeah, I'm competing. I want Mm -hmm. the A plus. (laughs) But of course. But when they begin to make assumptions about sort of what I know or what I don't know, And again, I feel like there's a little slippage. I've felt some slippage in some therapeutic relationships. Like boundary slippage? Yeah, well, there's still a therapist, one of my therapists who follows me on Facebook, who I've blocked, which is just like so fucked up, I can't even begin to tell you. But also that was the same person who cracked me open, couldn't put me back together. Okay, so when when there starts to be this slippage of peer stuff, that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And in that, the feeling I'm sensing into, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sensing into a desire to be taken care of. Yes. Because let me tell you, it's hard to be taken care of by the people around me. I have to beg often for help because people are like, I mean, when I had my divorce, which was the second most devastating thing in my entire life, friends I'd known for 15 years sort of rushed in to help my ex and help him grieve. And and they literally said to my face, you'll be fine, Tristan. You're you. You'll be fine. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I want it to be a space of insane compassion because I have trouble with self-compassion. And yeah, I want to walk in that space and feel like the leading, the leading feeling in that room is compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think too, love. I think so many therapists are afraid to use that word and to let themselves really feel that in the room. But that's, I think that's the way I really try to communicate with my clients. Like this space is a loving space for you. Mm -hmm. And like I had a client the other day who was talking about a breakup and she's judging herself about this breakup. And she's like, the story I'm making up in my head is that you're saying like, get over it already. And I was like, well, do you want to ask me about that? Do you want to ask me what I really think? And I was like, I'm so heartbroken for you, like, you know, X, Y, Z, and there is zero judgment here, right? And when you can ask and receive that love and compassion, I just, yeah, I wish that for everyone. Yeah. So I think you can never go wrong with leading with compassion. I think all of us have trouble giving ourselves compassion. And I give people, you know, a wide berth and lots of compassion way more than I give myself. I mean, it's like my, it's my thing. Like I I just, Mm -hmm. the judge in my head is, it's like when people are like, you're Mm -hmm. self-employed, that must be so amazing. I'm like, well, have you met my boss? Because she's a fucking bitch with high standards. 
coach. Exactly. My dad said that when I started my practice. He's like, well, congratulations. Now you have the best and worst boss yeah. you'll ever have. Oh, and it's yeah. true. <laughs> oh, well, we're coming to the end of the hour and... This has just been so amazing. I just, I love you and I love you more now. So you get an A plus for this interview. Oh, all I ever wanted was I hope an you A know. plus from a therapist. <laughs> right? I can't, yeah, I can't let it go. Yeah, no, but I just, I really, I think everyone is going to feel into this, this vulnerability in a really beautiful way. So thank you. Thank you for being you. Mm, thanks. You're so good at talking. <laughs> oh, you too. <laughs> Well, before you go, tell people where to find yeah. you. Yeah. My website, which hasn't been updated since forever, is tristanteramino.com. The only part of the website that's updated is the trainings and the workshops and the classes that I teach. So that's like super current. All the other stuff is like needs a little refresh. I have a podcast, mm -hmm. which is called Yay! Sex Out Loud. I'm celebrating. It will be eight years in June. And you can wow. find it wherever you find podcasts. So that's exciting. I'm on social media. I do my own social media. I answer my own messages. So I'm at Tristan Terramino across all platforms. There's a guaranteed way to get me to not respond to you. And that is to slide into my DMs and go, hey, what's up? <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Yeah, not gonna. Nope. I don't even know yeah. you. I literally don't know you. <laughs> so like, I don't know where you're going with this. But right. like, you've picked right. the wrong. Yeah, I need you to get to the I need to, you, you need to say something more or I can't possibly yeah. engage you. And for some reason that's right. been having a lot lately. People are just like in my DMs. Interesting. Just like, Ugh. how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> just... Yeah. Where do you want me to go from here? Right. <laughs> so yeah, so my podcast, they can check in with me weekly and a website and yeah. Yeah. The podcast is great. So many amazing guests and so informative. So I think one of the places that therapists could go first to learn more about sex and sexuality is your podcast. And it's free, you guys. I heard this. And you, then you can just sort of comb through the catalog and be like, oh, yeah. this is about dominance and submission. Oh, this is about polyamory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you can just mm -hmm. sort of there's a big back catalog. And I have heard that. And some people have assigned mm -hmm. certain episodes in their classes, therapists who mm -hmm, teach other mm -hmm. therapists. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, just thanks again for being here. I just appreciate you so much. And there's that smile again. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? Do you love Tristan as much as I do? I bet you do. And if you want to find out more information about her, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs>